Welcome to Central Line, Leadership in Healthcare, the show that shares stories, experiences, and advice from notable and innovative leaders in healthcare. Let's get started with your host, Leah Witchick. Eric Wazilenko is a palliative care physician and clinical ethicist from Southern Alberta. In addition to his clinical career, he has co-developed a number of novel programs and facilities and has had a number of leadership roles. He advises for and sits on committees with a number of provincial and national health agency and governments, primarily regarding organizational ethics, end-of-life care, public health policy, and health system economics. He has had the fortune to provide over 400 presentations to students, academics, the public, and clinicians, provincially, nationally, and internationally. He holds appointments as Clinical Associate Professor, Division of Palliative Medicine, Department of Oncology, Cumming School of Medicine at the University of Calgary, and Clinical Lecturer, John Dossiter Health Ethics Centre at University of Alberta. He has been recognized with a number of prestigious national, provincial, and community awards during his career. Eric and his wife Louise enjoy a well-rounded life on an acreage south of Calgary, Alberta. They travel extensively overseas, but are most charged up with their ongoing project to hike in every national park in Canada, with 70% completed to date. They marvel at the shenanigans, joys, and challenges faced by their six adult daughters, who live in various locations in Canada, and they feel especially blessed with a growing slew of grandchildren. Hello, Eric. How are you today? I'm fine, Leah. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you so much for being here, and welcome to Central Line Leadership in Healthcare podcast. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to have you here today. And maybe if you could just start with telling us a little bit about yourself and your career, maybe talk us through your career trajectory. Oh, sure. Thanks. It's uh, it's not a traditional one and it's a little bit complicated, but I've been really fortunate uh, as I sort of like to reflect on that I've had great opportunity to work with fantastic people in many different areas and uh, sectors and levels of the health system, um, which has given me a pretty broad perspective, I think, uh, that's been helpful for me in the projects that I work on. I started out as a rural family physician and did that for about 10 years. Uh, So in that capacity, had lots of opportunity to deal with uh, the challenges that patients might bring, as well as design of systems within rural settings um, where you didn't have all the resources that you might have, say, in a metropolitan region. And then uh, while I was doing that, I was fairly heavily involved with the College of Physicians and Surgeons in the Alberta Medical Association and and local healthcare uh, delivery organizations as well. At that, a certain point, I thought that I'd want to uh, move into a more highly specialized field, and I started training in palliative medicine in the mid-90s. And I've done palliative care as my clinical work solely since that time, so for about 25 years. Um, but uh, most of my work lately has been in healthcare administrative fields, uh, in policy development uh, and review, um, and working with a number of health agencies nationally and provincially, uh, primarily in advisory roles in clinical ethics. So I had always been interested in ethics, and it's a pretty common focus for people who are in end-of-life care. 
and um, uh, so in the in the probably around 2010 or 2012, I took a master's degree at the U of T from a distance um, in bioethics, uh, achieved that degree. And I wanted to get more grounding and more exposure to others that doing that work academically. And so I got that degree and then continued on with other organizations nationally and provincially providing um, advisory uh, services in clinical ethics that's both organizational wide as well as bedside uh, clinical ethics. So that's been really cool because it's exposed me to some really, really challenging questions. I always used to think that I'd seen most of, you know, what there was to see in, in, in healthcare as a clinician, especially in the end of life care, and then realized that there are many, many other very unusual circumstances that uh, patients and, uh, and health providers and systems I bring to us that requires some um, some thinking that might be a little different lens than traditional administrative and financial thinking would do. I had the good uh, fortune in end of life care to help with a, a really uh, well designed team and a group of collaborators from all disciplines to help create an integrated uh, end of life care system in the Calgary region in the late 90s and early 2000s and um, trying to live that language of developing seamless care or care that would be seamless hopefully for patients and families and providers and because we were having an increasingly integrated system in the Calgary region at the time we had the opportunity to actually do that uh, within all sectors of care that require health care. Uh, and then from that uh, also had the chance to lead a community volunteer team that uh, created, envisioned, and fundraised for and built a uh, rural freestanding nonprofit community owned hospice uh, near where I live in Okotoks, Alberta, which has been a really successful uh, program and integrated that service into the broader end of life care system within the Calgary zone at the time. So those are a few of the things that, that I've been able to, to be involved with. Um, one of the other very neat things that I appreciate uh, the chance to have done was to help lead and, and co-create a novel mechanism for designating care choices um, for patients called the Goals of Care Designation Framework. And in coincident with advanced care planning, it gives us the chance for patients to name and think about their values and wishes for care whether it's at the end of life or not at the end of life, um, and to match that or mix that with the expertise that a clinical team can provide um, to say the particular kinds of care that the person might be interested in, what might be clinically useful or doable. And so being able to sort of live that language of patient-focused or patient-centered care and give people a chance to really think about and name their wishes and have us in the health system uh, document that, hopefully develop good systems to transmit that information so that people who are working uh, with unfamiliar patients and patients who are working with unfamiliar teams as they 
traverse the health system um, have a mechanism to be able to um, nominate, designate, and honor a person's expressed wishes. So we think that gives better care. It reduces the chance of uh, giving overburdensome care that patients never wanted, and also of under-treating patients who do want some things uh, that are fancier that we might not have thought they wanted. So it helps us with that as well as um, making sure that we're assigning our resources in the health system in a, as effective way as possible. What important work. And uh, as you mentioned, it sounds like your your career has been very diverse with a lot of different pieces kind of all fitting together. And I'm curious to hear, uh, you mentioned that you have dealt with and come across situations that have really required some additional thought and have been really unique. Is there one in particular that stands out to you? Uh, there's a couple that I have in my mind that are both of, of national importance because government's asking a group of ethics experts to weigh in on a very particular challenge that they had um, uh, internationally in the health realm. Um, and it was around the Ebola crisis. And um, and then another one I'm thinking of that's related to a patient and their family at the bedside and the challenging decisions they had to make uh, to assure the best care for their loved one um, and the, that the clinicians had to also really wrestle with to determine what's right amongst a whole range of competing uh, important principles that were at the foundation of what they were trying to offer. Um, and those are the kinds of, you know, there's some everyday ethics issues that people are really well equipped to deal with, but a, a challenging ethics issue that I call a dilemma would be one in which um, there is not a standard way forward. There isn't a policy already generated and we have to sort out what are the competing principles? What are the potential options for action that might not be ethically justifiable or practically wise? What are the options that might be justifiable? And then choose from amongst those, um, give that recommendation and let the care team that includes the patient and or family um, decide from amongst those choices um, what is the right way forward. And from each of those cases, we learn more about how to do it. We learn as well what the, might, the right process might be. Uh, we always think about reviewing those and we also think about what are the unintended consequences. We seem to maybe get it right, we thought at the moment, but maybe in the fullness of time, we recognize that it may not have been the right idea that, that we generated. But So I, without telling you specifics about those, those would be pretty good examples, I think. I, I guess uh, another really challenging one has been medical assistance in dying. Um, and uh, the reason that it's a huge challenge is there's such a variety of views across the country, um, deeply held moral views about what's right and wrong. And I have a particularly strong view, and I've publicized that view, but despite it, um, was uh, asked to participate with a really strong team of individuals to help create a, a policy and a preparedness plan and all the things that needed to go on to create the mechanism to meet the new federal guidelines and the new federal law. Um, and so uh, doing that and figuring out the process was as important as what we ended up landing with. Uh, the process importantly involving patients and family members and people from all points of view so that we could get this the most right for all people. And of course, it's not perfect and there's always revisions that need to occur. But I think in Alberta, we did that really you know, very successfully, partly because of the process 
that that we undertook. Um, so it's it's an ongoing issue and and one that's not easy and it's fraught with lots of moral dilemmas. Um, but uh, anyway, that would be another example. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And what's so interesting to me about that is that. It's, as you said, an ongoing process. Uh, There's really no end in the sense of there's no perfect answer. I'm curious to know when you're dealing with some of these very ethically challenging issues, what do you do to, to wrestle with them internally? Is that something that you struggle with or is that something that um, at this point in your career comes fairly naturally for you? Well, it, it, it's a great question. I, I think it comes reasonably naturally but that doesn't mean that i find it easy and it doesn't affect me you know deep to my core as well we try to use the discipline of ethics not to say that the people who are ethicists or who use that are better or worse or more morally right than anybody else but rather to say this is a particular lens or framework that we can use to um, look at a particular problem and contribute to the problem, just as operational management issues are important lenses. Um, The legal um, frame is an important lens. The financial frame is an important lens. Um, I guess, you know, we like to think that the ethics is at its core, but it is just one contributor that's valuable and important and can can help one of the key things about um, ethics discourse or, or thought is that it's pretty disciplined and deliberate around a set of either principles or frameworks that say here's how you might want to think about these difficult problems because there isn't an obvious solution or a way forward and so we we agree first on the set of principles that we're going to use or the framework that we're going to use. So as a good example, and and thinking about potentially a feminist lens, we might think of that in terms of describing, this is a bit simplified, but describing um, those people in society who have not had the benefit of um, accessing the goods of all society that that the rest of us might have. And so if you use that lens, you would always say in your ethics frameworks or how you deliberate a problem, are there anybody, is there anybody through this decision who we're creating worse conditions of inequity for? And should we deliberately advantage as we're managing this issue, those people who have been traditionally disadvantaged in our society? So it might be that if we're putting into place a particular program, we always need to think now, how is this going to affect the marginally housed uh, amongst us or those people you know, who are living on the street or who are disadvantaged from some particular kind of illness or, or um, disability or other things. And if we always use that lens, we help um, decrease the risk of worsening inequity. So that would be an example of of a lens. So if we can use all those, regardless of what decision we come to, I get to say to myself, we've done the best we can. I may not like it, but we're living in a pluralistic society uh, where we have to think of a whole bunch of considerations. And I can live with it because we have used defensible and justifiable arguments to make a case for how we should move forward. We've agreed on those principles. Here's how we can apply them in a disciplined way. And let's go forward with that. It's not about what I like or think is right or wrong. It's what, you know, what we can justify through disciplined ethics deliberation that, you know, helps me cope with something that I think, wow, I'd rather that not be the solution, but it happens to be the solution. 
it sounds like it's a very structured process and uh it, it there's a lot that goes into that framework of thinking so eric you've had a really interesting mix of clinical work uh, as well as administrative work and so how are you finding that that balance how does that fit together I, I thought early uh, on about this question when I was actually much more clinically active. I'm, I'm pretty well um, completed my clinical career just as of a year ago. Um, so most of my work now is organizational and administrative. When I first started that, I was you know running this very busy community practice in rural Alberta. You're on call 24-7 basically um, for your own patients and at your home, and then you cover the eMERGE in the nights at the hospital on a rotation basis. It's, it's kind of never-ending and almost assaulting for your, for your time and your, your energies. And you know, there's lots of concerns at this time. This is in the, the late 80s and the early 90s, just as we were starting a regionalization in the province in Alberta. And, and lots of us were complaining. And I thought, you know, I'd, I'd rather be part of the deliberations to a solution than just be a complainer. And um, so it was really freeing for me, actually, to get into a place where I could actually have some impact on the decisions that were being made about how we construct particular parts of our health system. And it was, it felt, made me feel less like I'm maybe a victim to, I hate using that word, but subject to somebody else's decisions, but could be part of it. The best part of all that, though, was that it helped me see a whole bunch of different perspectives that I wouldn't have seen if I had remained solely as a clinician. Now, that's hugely valuable and hugely important. And I, as I look back on my career, I really appreciate the chance to have made a substantial difference to individual patients who came to me for some assistance. It's also very neat to be able to uh, have an influence on a large number of patients through system change. And um, so I feel really very blessed that I've had the chance to do both of those. One of the early lessons I learned, because you know, in the, in the mid eighties when I started practicing, there wasn't a lot of collaboration between disciplines and there wasn't the assumption of our current mindset that we value interdisciplinary um, teamwork and the contributions of all others in the same way it's an assumption now but we had to get there some way in steps and so i've been able to be fortunate to see the development of those steps over time where we've reached now a much more wholesome and inclusive way of leading than had occurred at the start of the time when i've started my career um, that's been a really cool thing to watch Mm -hmm, absolutely. And it's really interesting what you said about now it's it's an assumption, um, but that wasn't always the case, that this has also been a process to get to the, this place that we're at. So it's clear that you stepped into various leadership roles and various leadership capacities. And I'm really curious to know, what do you wish you had known when you started out in leadership? Boy, that could take a few hours. <laughs> um, <laughs> One way to answer that, I guess, would be to say very recently, 
I'm working currently at the Health Quality Council of Alberta. We have a reasonably high-functioning team, and we wanted to make it even more high-functioning and had identified some things about our way of being together that we wanted to change. So our CEO uh, committed the resources to uh, bring us a uh, career and personal and, and and life coach, basically, who's worked with lots of uh, worldwide big organizations. We developed a social contract um, that helped us understand ways to work together, to not jump to conclusions, to have um, difficult or challenging, uncomfortable conversations through balanced feedback that weren't threatening, but were actually really supportive of each other, even though they might've been hard conversations. Those are skills that we all need to learn better that I didn't have uh, early in my career and I'm still learning and that I wished I'd had uh, um, for all parts of my life, even with you know, my kids and, and, uh, and friends and, and other social contacts. One of the things we're working on now is this project called Proactive, addressing professionalism in the workplace, starting with physicians, but not limiting it to physicians. And part of that is to upskill us all with those interpersonal skills that help decrease pressure and stress and uh, non-collaboration in the workplace. We're not created that way always naturally. And in healthcare, we've got a lot of really high-driving, accomplished, smart individuals uh, who maybe don't have that as a base personality to collaborate and, and to you know, be reflective and to sit back before jumping in. We're all fixers and problem solvers. And learning those skills of not having to jump to those natural ways of being, but a much more relation-based way of being. And we're trying to recreate some of that for those that we're working with, especially students and early career uh, clinicians and leaders to have some of those skills. We think that's gonna improve joy in the workplace. It's gonna improve satisfaction, lessen stress and anxiety and depression. We know there is a huge crisis of those mental health concerns in healthcare. There's a huge crisis of suicide and burnout. We've gotta do something to change that equation. And this is one of the directions and ways that we, I think we'll do it. Those are pieces that um, aren't taught on a regular basis. When I think back to our traditional academic environments, those are often things that are, are either missed or excluded. I think that's changing now. I'm seeing a bit of shift from those people that are working in academic realms, but there's more to be done with that. There sure is. You know, we, we're, as I was saying earlier, I think, uh, you know, we're really hard driving people that are problem solvers. Uh, instead of sitting back and figuring out how we relate better to people and, and, and help each other contribute in really strong ways and be safe, which is probably a better relational way to get to where we need to get to. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's about relationships, isn't it? Yeah. That's the piece that is the most important factor in everything that we do. Leah, that reminds me to talk a little bit about something that has bothered me for a while. And I wrote about this a little bit in one of the pieces of literature that I've contributed. And it is that we don't really have a great way in our system of supporting formal and informal leaders. Um, we need to do better. We have an ability to be able to... Um, support our leaders in different ways, recognize the challenges that they have in really difficult, challenging circumstances, um, and, and find ways as people to support them.
And sometimes it feels to me that's better to be done informally and just to reach out, regardless of who you are in an organization, to reach out and say, I saw you do this, or I heard you do this, or here's a message you gave. Thanks very much for doing that. That's, that was really helpful. It was clear. It helped me, and I appreciate your leadership. Our, our leaders, we're afraid sometimes to approach them, and they don't often get those kudos unless they're really big, you know, big deal kudos. It's those everyday little things that people facing the challenges they do every day in big systems as senior leaders, I think, appreciate hearing and need to hear from the rest of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you bring up a really interesting point about it being the everyday things that really go a long way in making a significant impact. And those are the things that we need to acknowledge and highlight and hold up that that person knows that they're doing a great job and they should keep doing it, but also so that others can see that as well and build on that momentum. Right. Eric, I'm curious to hear what was the most rewarding experience that you've had in your career? Oh man, that's really hard to say. Uh, There certainly are some big highlights for programs that I've maybe created or influenced in a substantial way or uh, led that carried on. And I really like starting something, getting it to its, through its, you know, early legs and then leaving and letting other people take over. But I have to say there is nothing better than being able to have a dramatic influence on a patient and or their family. And, um, you know, those are numerable in, in a career of medicine or nursing or other things. And, um, you know, I can remember specifically some, you know, the faces of and the conversations in the room with which we'd have conversations helping somebody to die well, um, who may have been facing tremendous existential fear, spiritual concern, relationship problems, or physical symptoms. And being able to have, that's one of the things I love about end-of-life care or palliative care is that we have time to actually sit with people and explore all that with them. It's not a quick rush in and out moment. We get longitudinal care with them. And to be able to know that you've had an impact on that really critically important time of their life when they only have a week or two weeks or three weeks left to do all the things they want to do to cement their legacy or, or, or secure their relationships with those they love and that you could relieve their pain and suffering through the, your, your medicine or techniques that you could also um, just be with them as real people. Uh, it's really impactful. I, I treasure more than my ability to you know, help somebody through their pain crisis when they um, recognize that they appreciated that I just sat with them and talked about their spiritual concerns and that made a difference to them or, or something like that. Those are really, really meaningful moments for me. Yeah, that's incredibly powerful. And Everything you just said really resonates with me as well. Uh, Some of my most memorable moments in my nursing career have been with those at the end stages of their life. And those are the things that I remember. Um, So I just think it's so powerful to be able to support somebody through that process. Um, Making a bit of a shift now, um, I'm curious to hear what have you learned along the way around impact and influence in healthcare? It's a, it's a good question. I, I guess it leads me to think about one of the messages that I, I wanted to send today through this conversation. Lots of times we think about as, you know, if our careers have the chance to move into more and more senior 
layers of complex administration in healthcare, that the path to influence and impact always has to be about getting to the top or climbing the ladder, being, the, being that formal leader designated. And although senior leaders have tremendous authority and sometimes hold really substantial and important power, utilized hopefully in a good way, there are also huge limitations to being those um, named leaders because you have to you know, follow a particular mission and vision and always show that you're consistent with that without any deviation. You're subject to potentially the political whims or requirements um, and you don't have the chance to be down in the weeds uh, developing maybe a policy or developing a program or influencing new research or a new clinical finding that impacts thousands of people for, for down the road. And so an important thought for me is, uh, because I, I, I've had the chance to be in those senior levels and I've done some of that and, and, and I've always been worried about the notion that only senior leaders can have those kinds of impacts or influences. I, I don't think it's true. And I think most of us probably need to have as our desire and our, our view of maybe success or contribution, if I can use those words, um, the goal of not being in those senior leadership positions, but be, having the goal of saying, how can I best contribute in ways that match my personality, my skills, my hesitancies, my passions, um, that I can do the best work I can and contribute in the way I can. That's, that's leadership. It's also followership. We, we don't all have the opportunity or the constraints, if I can use that language, around uh, being in a senior leadership position. It doesn't mean those people are any less. And senior leaders aren't any better. They have a particular skill set that they have to harness and generate the things that they uniquely are being asked to do to you know coalesce the resources and distribute them and decide what to do and not to do with an organization or for an organization that's really important but it's not more important than the clinician who's making a difference with a particular single patient or somebody who's figuring out a whole new sort of way to to finance things or um, I mean, there's myriad examples. I guess what I'm trying to get at is that each job has its huge importance, that impact. When you think about healthcare as being the coalescence of millions of individual transactions between usually two people, sometimes it's between a machine and a person, but it's usually between two or more people. Um, it's the coalescence of all those things that sometimes a leader has to be concerned about, but each of those is uniquely important, especially to those we serve, which is the foundation of all of healthcare anyway. So I, I guess it's a bit of a philosophical push or pitch in that way, um, but it's important to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I can hear that passion and that importance that uh, is really coming through in what you're saying. For somebody who's wrestling with that question of how can I contribute, what do you think they need to think about or do to, to work through that? I guess I'd say think about where your passions are and your skills and your interests. Where do you see yourself 30 years from now or five or 10 years from now being able to contribute in ways that you think are meaningful for those we serve? 
and meaningful for you in your own personal and moral and psychological development. Um, find things that will keep that passion there. One of the reasons I left family practice, I'd, I had a great practice and I, I loved my patients and uh, it was really interesting, stimulating work, but I couldn't see myself doing that 30 years from at that time. And I thought, now I've got some different kind of skills I want to tap and I want to learn new different things. So I need to challenge myself, myself in different ways. So I'd say to people, think about that deliberately. Don't follow this path that somebody else has set for you or that you think you need to follow. You'll probably find there's some point where you say, I actually don't like doing this. I'm not happy doing it. Um, so deliberately think about uh, where you want to be, what skills you want to learn, where you want to be most helpful. I tended to always have a five and a 10 year plan that I would try to contour and say, now if I need to be there in five years, what do I need to learn today to get to that position or that area of influence or that area of practice or, or whatever. Uh, that deliberate thinking uh, is, in my view, important for each of us. And I like that you're really drawing on people's passions as well as their strengths and you know helping people to to bring that to the forefront and and to use that so that they can make that impact now i'm curious to hear your thoughts around influence in healthcare the pieces of feedback that i hear from a lot of the people that i speak with um particularly those who are in in physician leadership is that right from the get go in medical school there's this sense of competition that if you actually want to be a leader and you want to influence, it's a competition between yourself and others. Do you agree with that? And if so, what might we need to do to, to shift it to one that's more focused on collaboration? Well, it's, a, it's an interesting question. It's multi-layered. It, um, competition might be better. So I wouldn't jump to the conclusion that we have to shift. Um, and I, I would say my personal view is that we have to shift, but I'm not sure that that's the right view. Collaboration can be exceedingly helpful, but so can competition. And um, I was fortunate to go through the Calgary Medical School where it was not a competitive model. And the focus was on working in teams and together and um, achieving uh, the the competencies that you had to, but not at the expense of anybody else. So maybe that drew certain people into the school, maybe that philosophy, or perhaps it helped develop that uh, understanding within us. And there were some very competitive people in our class and some very non-competitive people, just as there are probably everywhere. So that was you know one interesting foundation for me that may or may not have been influential. Um, so much of success in our world, and this is outside of healthcare and inside of healthcare, is about ego and how ego can be helpful to help us achieve success and drive us forward. But that can be very, very destructive, as can competition as well. When we look at the parameters of success around what we achieve, or as I was saying earlier, what level we got to in the healthcare hierarchy, that should not be the foundation for how we view success. And you know, one of the issues about competition, oh, it's, it's, it's the way of our world and you do compete for positions and you compete for grants and you compete for job postings or patients or whatever you want to say. Um, it's not the fundamental um, that connects properly, in my view, to 
the reasons for healthcare. And the, the reason for healthcare is actually to take a, uh, a particular resource of skills, knowledge, experience, generosity, and um, physical capabilities, so that might include resources, in service of those people in our society who need to access us for help managing their health. And the purpose of the health system, in my view, is so that we reduce suffering in the human condition. And that's laudable by itself, but it's primarily not only to reduce suffering, but to reduce the burden of illness and suffering that prevents people from achieving their person-centered aims. So whatever those aims might be, um, and enjoying life is a, is a perfectly valid aim, uh, being able to contribute to society, having a job, career, having a family, all those things are the aims that you know, we would normally name. Healthcare is meant to do those two things, in my view, to reduce suffering, because that's noxious to the human condition, um, but also to help people achieve their aims. But it is a very service-oriented profession and area of endeavor of society and society's put their trust in us to be able to deliver on the promises that we make in healthcare service and so to the degree that competition hurts us in accomplishing that and that aim we absolutely have to shift to the degree that competition helps us get to excellence um, you know achieving new uh, phenomenal uh, gains in in healthcare discoveries and science, it can be actually really helpful. But bottom line for me, as you were suggesting, I think in your opening comments in your question, is that probably collaboration um, should be dominant and there is some value in competition, but the base is collaboration because we are a service-oriented area that's aiming to help people. And in so doing, in nursing, in medicine, in, uh, in physiotherapy, in, in, every, in every other discipline, we're actually, um, our fiduciary commitment or responsibility says that we will put ourselves even at risk and um, expose ourselves to some risk in service of others. And that's the very unique fiduciary commitment of essential services that are aimed to protect, serve, and help other people in their personal lives. And there's many other uh, careers that are like that, not a ton, but some. Um, we're, it's really important that we remember always that's the foundation of why we're here, what we're doing. And we've given, we've received from society our education and other things. We have given a promise to that fiduciary commitment to serve others even at the expense or risk to ourselves. Uh, that, that requires probably for excellence, that requires collaboration rather than just competition. It's a brilliant answer um, because I think it really taps into uh, at the core why people go into healthcare, you know, the reason why we do this. And as you said, to even expose ourselves to, to potential risk or very real risk as well. We're nearing the end of our time together. And Eric, what else do you want to share with our listeners that perhaps I haven't asked you about? Uh, thanks. Uh, there's a f maybe another message I wanted to translate around transparency. We're just working right now in, in this current environment of uh, trying to manage COVID-19. And um, the, it's fascinating to watch uh, some of our leaders 
And I think it's actually been quite universally, beautifully applied in healthcare, but in business as well, uh, and in government sometimes as well, uh, about transparent messaging. And because we're all in this together, we have a duty to not hold back special things we know at risk, thinking that we're risking people being anxious. Um, and, and that's, it's a, it's a leadership skill that I think we need to adopt in many other parts of our healthcare environment, um, everyday stuff, not just big crises like, like this currently. And it is to assume that your audience is as smart as you are and that they will have language and ideas that you haven't thought of. And also because those people that we're making decisions on behalf of are subject to our decisions, they deserve to be well-informed about them and to contribute. And I think that's the foundation for why we now have person-centered care and why we include patient voices and family voices in so many of the things that we are trying to design in the health system uh, for, for partly for those particular reasons. We don't have the market cornered on knowledge and skill and experience. We're important contributors. And back to my earlier comments about advanced care planning goals of care designation, that sort of marries that philosophy really quite nicely. We're using the expertise of the patient and what they know about themselves and their desires and their values and their, their information and marrying that with the expertise of clinicians who are skilled and experienced in, in providing sort of some context around um, how our resources and skills can help them meet their goals. We're marrying those two bits of really important contributing um, or contributions together. And it's the same in big systems and in you know, government dealing and in, in trying to manage these big crises. We are all in this together and we should not be assuming that we have special knowledge or skills. So for healthcare leaders, I would implore as well that in our everyday management outside of crises, that we really look carefully. There's this principle in ethics called subsidiarity where we say those people who are at the front line, the actual service delivery mechanisms, the, you know, the unit of care um, have a really important place to provide information and make decisions. It shouldn't all be top down. Um, so that, that would be, I think, one important message I, I'd want to give as well. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting, that, that transparency, but also shifting the dialogue so that it isn't top down, but it is more aligned with a partnership. And, and that's what I really hear in that. And I wonder, too, uh, if there's alignment with that concept of radical candor. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I, I think that it, it strikes people well. Uh, you know, we've got to be sensitive to not beat people over the head with information they're not ready to achieve yet or to, to hear and listen you know, too carefully, especially in times of fear and panic. Um, but when you are honest, and I see this in, in my healthcare practice too, in end-of-life care, people appreciate it and they expect that honesty. Now, it's true some people would rather have us kind of gild the lily a bit and you know, not have them hear all the, the gory details and, and the truth about what we're thinking, but most people trust us more and feel like they're part of that sort of sentinel team or decision-making group when we've been 
very honest and open. Um, again, you know, we always have to think about being sensitive uh, to the circumstance and know the people we're dealing with really well to know, you know, how much do they need to know. So to give a practical example in end-of-life care, people will often say, you know, how long do I have to live? And I would, you know, instruct some of my students and say, um, my experience is that you shouldn't blurt out the honest answer right from the get-go. Um, you first have to assess where do you think they are? And so I'll often say to people, I'm really willing to tell you my best estimate of that. Can you tell me a little bit about, first of all, why, what's important to know for you and what you're thinking? And that's not a dodge or a deflection. It's so that I can determine where their head is at. And if somebody is thinking they're going to live for three years and I know it's likely to be two weeks and I blurt out it's likely two weeks, I've lost them and the chance for, you know, a therapeutic moment. So I want to know where they're thinking. So if they say three years, I can structure the information I need to give in a very different way. I'll still get there, but in a very different way than if the person says, I think I'm dying tomorrow. And so, you know, the same principle applies, though, as we lead large teams or as we lead a whole system or a population um, and, and try to impart the information that we're trying to impart. That's a uh, fascinating, Eric. And I, I think you, you raised such important points around the sensitivity and understanding the context and where the other person is at. So what is a final piece of wisdom you'd like to share? Oh, oh and I guess one thing to say would be, when we face as leaders in the health system difficult choices and decisions it's always helpful if we've thought about and agreed upon the principles and objectives first and then base our decisions or our policy or our actions on those principles when we have the hard conversations about the principles and they often are very difficult but we've agreed on those, we can always return to them and say, how is whatever we've decided justified based on those agreed principles? If we don't do that at the outset, then we're dickering about the policy approach or the implementation plan or the allocation of resources or the action that we take as leaders. And we have, and people argue about those because they haven't gotten to the base principles first and agreement around them. And so that would be, I think, a really strong thing to impart to leaders at, at all levels to say, let's do a lot of that background work before we get to decisions. Uh, it will help defend our decisions and it helps people, it helps bring people together in an important way. Harder to do because it's harder to have those conversations at the get-go, but it, it pays in dividends uh, in the final analysis in my experience. Mm, thank you so much, Eric. Thank you for being here today and for sharing all of your knowledge and your expertise. Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. And uh, a lot of the points that you brought forward, I think, are just so relevant and so applicable to, to healthcare professionals at all levels, whether or not they are in a in, in, maybe an informal leadership role or a formal leadership role, and uh, thinking about those ways that they can have impact and influence every day of their work. So thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. It's a great conversation, Leah. Thanks so much for joining us today at Central Line leadership in healthcare. Also, 
If you like what you heard, please head on over to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review. Be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. We'd love to get to know you on social media, so check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.